Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Ropline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Luis Manuel Garcia is a University of Chicago-trained ethnomusicologist who is currently an assistant professor in popular music at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Put simply, his area of study is dance music and club culture, though his academic work touches on such topics as sexuality, emotion, and migration. He's turned a critical eye on aspects of this culture that pass most of us by as we rave through the night. It's worth mentioning, though, that Garcia is an enormous fan of this music as well. If you've spent any time clubbing in Berlin, there's a good chance he's been dancing alongside of you. He's also involved in the La Mission Collective, which has artists like Axel Bowman and DeWalta on his label roster. Garcia has penned some of our most thought-provoking features, including last year's Alternative History of Sexuality and Club Culture, and a primer on the development of electronic music festivals. We were keen to hear him discuss his work more generally, and to pick his brain about a range of big issues in dance music. totally sure, but but I, I do think that you're the first person we've had on the exchange who's primarily an academic. Tell me a bit about what exactly you study. That's a that's a good question with a long answer, but I'll try to uh, try to keep it short and pithy. Um, my training is in a field called ethnomusicology, um, which is, in a lot of ways, uh, you can understand it as sort of a mix between anthropology and music studies. Um, or an anthropology of music. So the kind of work I do has mostly to do with studying music, uh, music in culture and music as culture. So, you know, the ways that music is practiced in, in, in music scenes, in communities, and in, uh, you know, in, in cultural groups. Um, that's sort of the discipline that I'm, that, that's my background. Uh, and then I specialize or I focus primarily in electronic music scenes and electronic music communities, clubs, you know, what have you. Um, and, uh, beyond that, more specifically the, my, my PhD work. So the work that I had done as my, my first big solo research project, um, had a lot to do with, uh, sort of social behaviors and interactions on the dance floor, specifically how we behave, uh, sort of, and how we interact with each other, um, at dance music events, electronic music events. Um, and what role intimacy plays in that, especially what I what I call stranger intimacy. So the ways that people behave with each other when they don't actually know each other in a personal or social way. And, you know, what sort of boundaries um, shift or change, um, what sort of uh, obstacles maybe disappear briefly or at least are suspended or ignored for a while. Uh, and what role um, music plays in that. And in particular, what role music plays through emotion. So the ways in which music impacts um, you know, our sort of emotional and sensory experience and how that maybe creates certain openings for different kinds of, different kinds of sociality, as they would say, as a social, social contact and so on. 
Um, but then since then, I've, I've sort of widened my, my scope. I've been doing more research on uh, uh, so-called techno-tourism. Uh, so these you know, patterns of movement and, uh, and consumerism and sightseeing and what have you that are connected to electronic music scenes. The so-called easy jet set, perhaps. Exactly, right, exactly. And, that, I mean, and I'm certainly... Um, Heavily, heavily influenced by uh, the you know what's now become a landmark book by a Tobias Rapp, the Easy Jet Set, um, or the the book precisely is Lost in Sound, uh, Berlin Techno and the Easy Jet Set. One of the first books to sort of signal the importance of that, of that development of that pattern, um, and uh, you know and since then I think there's been more and more written about it uh, in sort of short journalistic formats. Uh, in magazines and in, you know, sort of the human interest section of newspapers and so on. Um, some of which has been really interesting and perceptive, some of which has been uh, more shallow to say, to put it, you know, in a, in a, a, a light way or in a diplomatic way. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do with this, with my most recent project is to put together a study of this pattern specifically in Berlin. So this is for me, at least unique to Berlin, although there are other forms of electronic music tourism in other places in the world, but I'm interested in Berlin and I'm interested in how, uh, I'm interested in making a, a really detailed and really sort of coherent um, analysis of what's happening here in the city. So, you know, looking at it from different angles and trying to deal with um, multiple aspects, you know, so like on the one hand, the, the sort of classic tourist questions, but also how this ties into gentrification, which is also happening in the city and is to some degree impacted by all of this you know, traffic of people coming in and out of the city and the conversion of available real estate into hotels, or informal hotels, for example, and that sort of thing, you know, and then I'm also interested in how that connects to ideas of locality, like the way that the local scene responds to being sort of inundated with an influx of, of uh, travelers and how they manage local identity and so on. And then more recently, what I've become really interested in is uh forms of sort of musical migration that are associated with this. So, you know, this is the whole expat community in Berlin that's specifically electronic music related. People who've um, often been te techno tourists themselves at the beginning, and then at some point made the decision to relocate here for usually some combination of professional reasons and also uh, sort of, you know, music, interest, personal, aesthetic reasons, whatever, you, however you want to des describe that precisely. Uh, so I've been, I found that as a really interesting aspect of this whole thing, specific to Berlin, um, to the extent that Berlin has sort of become an industry hub, or it has been for some time now, in a way that Nashville might be an industry, an industry hub for country music. Uh, so that that makes for this really interesting sort of collision of multiple multiple um, patterns and multiple influences and developments that, that you don't really see in many other places. Talking about this idea of techno-tourism, uh, there are a few other places that, that spring to mind with regard to techno-tourism, probably most notably Ibiza. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It might seem obvious on the surface, but I mean, what makes Berlin different than a place like that? What What is the, the, the sort of <clears throat> essence of the Berlin situation? Right, uh, that's a good question, and I think to Ibiza, we could also add uh, Las Vegas more recently um, as a, like a third example that's even different from the first two in various ways. Um, but to begin with Ibiza, um, you know, I haven't been there yet personally, so everything I'm going to say is mostly based on 
um, either what I've sort of read and seen, uh, and also what I've heard through the people that I've interviewed. Because since the research that I do is primarily ethnographic, that means that the the data I collect, so to speak, for my research is mostly interviews with people. Um, who are part of these scenes in one way or another. So I do have a lot of material that way from people who've been there and sort of reported back in some detail, um, many of whom were also frequent vi visitors to Berlin. So I've actually had some uh, some great opportunities to hear people compare these two places really explicitly. Um, I think um, on, the one, on the one hand, you could certainly call in uh, Ibiza a kind of an industry hub as well. And it certainly has been one for longer, or at least has been uh, for a longer unbroken period of time. Because there certainly was a time in the 90s when Berlin was also an international hub for, for electronic music and industry, as well as sort of the parties themselves. Um, but there was a big collapse in the rave scene at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and then there, there was sort of a fallow period or a sort of a low period before the you know the Berlin minimal was then ascendant, and with it the whole city sort of came up, uh, and became again uh, a site for for tourism. Um, whereas I, I have the impression that Ibiza has always stayed on the radar as this really important uh, industrial center or you know professional center. Let's say industrial makes it sound like there are factories involved, you know, which technically is true with pressing plants, but you know they're not located in Ibiza. So let's say it's more of a professional um, hub for electronic music. Uh, certainly, um, as far as DJ careers are concerned, Ibiza has been important as a stepping stone, as a place to go and get booked a few times in order to get bookings elsewhere. Um, but I think with the rise of Berlin, there has been, um, I don't know if it's competition, but there's now sort of two parallel tracks. Um, you know, you can, you can go to Ibiza and get booked there and identify with a particular kind of scene, a particular kind of crowd, um, and a particular a particular sort of party philosophy in a way, a particular idea of what it means to, to have a good party. Um, and then that gets you booked elsewhere, certainly, um, but then in particular clubs and not others. Um, or you can get yourself booked in Berlin, particularly in, in particular high profile or high prestige clubs, um, Berkheim being one of them, but not the only one. Um, you know, and that that sort of aligns you with a different, a different partying philosophy and a different set of values around you know, what, 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 what's a fun time and, and what good music is even, or how you perform it and so on. And then that also leads to bookings, but in different places and in different ways. Um, I would then, I think I would then add, you know, Las Vegas in the last few years as being somewhat similar um, in, in that sense of being a place where performers can, uh, especially DJs, can launch their careers or at least boost them in various ways. But I think all three of these places do have some differences as far as um, what kind of careers they launch and what kind of performers would want to go to one place or another um, and what they get out of it. You know, so certainly Las Vegas has been booming precisely as the American uh, sort of music festival oriented EDM boom has happened. Uh, and so the sort of performers who seem to be getting booked there and the ones who seem to see that as a good place to go career-wise are folk, folks who are already in that sort of festival circuit, you know, and are into the really large-scale events, um, you know, often with a very explicit um, commercial branding, you know, or, or product placement, et cetera, et cetera, you know, much more tightly integrated into a larger um, a larger sort of economic system of the music industry, you know, sort of more big label in a lot of ways and, and more professionalized in that sense, you know, of having 
you know, agents and branding professionals and all of those sorts of people also there to make that happen in a much more slick way, I guess I could say, um, than what you would see maybe in um, Ibis or Berlin. Um, I think Berlin in a lot of ways remains one of the most sort of DIY oriented, um, you know, not deprofessionalized because there is a great deal of professionalism in Berlin, but the the aesthetics around it are very different. There is there seems to be a real desire here in Berlin to make things look as spontaneous and as DIY as possible, to make things seem as to some degree sort of um, uh, a little bit uh, improvised and maybe even a little bit um, run down or or even somewhat sort of dysfunctional or crazy as part of a particular image. I mean, yeah. Do yeah. you think at this point, uh, with regard to Berlin, it is that sort of DIY aesthetic? Is it, is it just sort of the appearance of that? I mean, my, my impression of Berlin at this point is that it is quite professional. I think it does go deeper. Um, and I think what we're seeing a lot of in Berlin is really um, sort of exploring new territory in what it means to be professional. In other words, new new ideas of what it what it means to be professional are being developed within the music industry here that really contrast with what you see in Las Vegas and also contrast to a certain degree with what you see in Ibiza, which I sort of, in my own head, identify with maybe a more, with sort of a natural extension of the music professionalism that you saw developing in the 90s in electronic music, like during the height of the sort of rave moment. I think that a lot of that, those kinds of um, professional pathways really still persist in, in Ibiza, at least based on what I can see and, and who goes there and how they, how, they, how they build a career out of you know, being attached to that city. Um, whereas I find in Berlin, on the one hand, I think some of this has to do with a certain political background, right? That Berlin has this long history of being associated with um, you know, alternative uh, ways of life, alternative forms of sort of collective organization. Um, many of which have to do with being very explicitly in opposition to um, uh, sort of large organizations of capital, um, any kind of authoritative political regime, any any notion of of authority to begin with. All of those seem to be sort of culturally, historically, really important for this place. And I think a lot of the people, certainly those who are sort of active in the early phases of Berlin's re-emergence in the early two thousands, I think a lot of them are very genuinely. Um, Invested in that, I, you know, I, I don't think I would ever want to question their their authenticity in that sense. But then, what's what's been really interesting to see is how these folks who've often started off in uh, uh, you know with these these very strongly held sort of values, which then are supposed to be expressed in certain ways that are you know really aesthetic in a way, you know, as far as how you dress, what your club looks like, you know, how gritty it looks, you know. And I think grit instead of glamour is a real important sort of distinction between Berlin versus Ibiza or now Berlin versus Las Vegas. Um, and while that's still preserved to a degree, and there's a lot of, I notice there's a lot of effort and anxiety really that gets put into preserving that image. Um, you know, professionalism happens because, more, you know, more and more, People are coming to the city, more and more people are involved in the scene, more and more money is flowing through the city, specifically having to do with the dance music uh, scene. So by ne by necessity, somebody's got to be professional, you know, somebody, <laughs> somebody's got to manage all of this, you know, and whoever does, you know, um, has a good chance of doing quite well if in, in a city that so, you know, historically had been quite anti-industry in a way. So yeah, I think, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of new uh, new ways of being professional being invented in the city. And, and so I, like, I'd agree with you that there's a lot of professionalism in Berlin now. Um, 
And, but the way it's developing, and in particular the way that it presents itself, is really different. Partially, I think, because there is this desire to be professional enough to be trusted, you know, for your, your artists to, to trust you or for you, the promoters to, you know, talk to you or what have you, but not so professional as to alienate them. And I think that's really different from um, other other sort of urban music scenes where that th- those values might be different. You're now based in the Netherlands doing academic work, yep. uh, but for a long time before that, you were here. Um, you have quite a sort of long-standing relationship with Berlin. What What actually brought you here? Was it your academic work or did you sort of come here just as someone who was very interested in the scene here, and then that kind of went on to influence your academic work? Uh, both, I'd say, you know, a little from column A and a little from column B. Um, or I think in a way that's that really is similar to many of the people I've interviewed uh, for my own research, especially those who've migrated to the city, um, I've managed to make both sort of work for each other. So... Um, you know, during my PhD years, when I was technically based in Chicago, which is where I went to university, um, I found my way over to Europe uh, at a couple of instances. I did some research in Paris um, for a couple of years. And while I was there, um, that was really when I discovered Berlin as um, a sort of a re, uh, re-flourishing or, or um, yeah, re-emerging music scene. Um, that would have been 2006 or seven. Uh, that I first visited Berlin as a as a, oh, a techno tourist in that sense, you know, where I, I took a easy jet flight from Paris to Berlin uh, and checked it out and realized that it was uh, it was uh, really you know not just great but it was extremely interesting for my research. Um, at that point, I had been doing fieldwork in Paris, and my ethnographic contacts or fieldwork contacts in Paris were all saying, "It's you know we're really flattered that you're here in Paris doing this research, but if your project's on electronic music, why are you not in Berlin?" Uh, so that was my first visit there. And then after that, I essentially was doing the techno tourist thing for another year or so where I was going almost once a month for a weekend from Paris to Berlin. Uh, and then I managed to organize a couple of summers there where I lived in in, in Berlin um, for a couple of months straight. Uh, and so by the time that I was wrapping up my PhD, I already had a real um, personal interest in Berlin you know, motivated by my own uh, passions for the music, but also a professional one in the sense that this is the that's the sort of music I want to research, and it was very clear that that's where a lot of it was happening. Um, not just as far as good parties, which of course you know I'm always a fan of, um, but also that's where the professionals are concentrated, both the performing professionals and the ones who make the events happen, the promoters, the agents, um, the you know the journalism and so on. You know, there was this real uh, you know creative industry cluster to use the. Uh, kind of a horrendous term that's been created uh, or that's been developed for that. So, so yeah, I had both, I had multiple reasons to want to come to Berlin. And then I just had the very good luck that among the various uh, post PhD opportunities that I was, you know, investigating and applying for, one of them was a postdoctoral research uh, fellowship here in Berlin. Uh, so, you know, of the many things that did and did not pan out at, during that the end of my PhD, one of them was for Berlin. It, it, it ended up also being the best choice professionally. So it actually, it was a, I was in a lucky position where I, the place I wanted to go was also the place that made the most sense for my own career as an academic. Uh, and then since then, I've been in Berlin for a few years, um, a good three, four years, um, as a postdoctoral researcher in a couple different places before finally getting a more uh, stable position in the Netherlands. What can you tell me about um, sort of the state 
of um, academic research into electronic music. Uh, you know, I, I think with every academic field, there tend to be sort of trends, things that lots of people seem to cluster around at any given moment. I mean, what are people interested in with regard to electronic music right now? Yeah, um, certainly the research into electronic music uh, continues to flourish. Um, there was a moment of sort of like a, there was a little boom in electronic uh, music research in the early 2000s, right around the turn of the century, um, where a number of scholars were finishing their PhDs and starting to write books on this topic. That was when you really saw some of the some of the older raver kids, you know, because in, in general, up until now, um, the people who really dedicate their whole life to doing academic research in electronic music have almost always lived the life first and then gone into the that topic or into that field. Um, so the first generation of raver kids sort of entered into and finished their PhDs at around that time. And so we started seeing some books in the early 2000s that really focused on on um, electronic music in one way or another. Um, but they were, that was, it was still very sparse at that point. There were a handful of people doing it, um, but they were very much alone. You know, they were a small group, um, tightly knit in a lot of ways, um, and in many ways sort of paying the price professionally for what they did. There was, uh, at that point, certainly very little respect for doing academic research in electronic music. Um, and there might be more now, but it's still, I will say, a real uphill battle professionally for folks who decide to go into that into that uh, field. Um, and interestingly enough, you don't just get disrespect from the sort of classic music studies people, the people who would maybe work with classical music or with traditional folk music for that matter, um, but also from popular music people themselves. That uh, there is much in the way that in popular music uh, journalism, you can... Uh, criticize a certain history of rockism, you know, where rock music sort of became the one and only, th you know, topic of discussion for a long time. And the, the, the sort of the, the yardstick against which everything else was sort of measured, um, as far as genres and styles were concerned, something similar happened in music, uh, studies, at least sort of the academic study of popular music, where that became sort of reduced down to just rock and, you know, the best of, um, and certain very classic ideas of, of rock. And it took quite some time for popular music studies to expand and to become more welcoming to the study of other genres. And um, in, by the, at the early 2000s, it was still a really rough ride, uh, in, my, in my opinion, for ac academics working on electronic music. But it's changed since then. Why do you think uh, electronic music was sort of marginalized in that way by, by academia? I mean, mm -hmm. um, what makes one style of music kind of less respected as an area of study than another. Right. Um, there are a lot of reasons, uh, you know, to, to, to use a very, um, uh, sometimes overused academic term, you know, it's overdetermined. Uh, in other words, that there's multiple determinants that, that make this thing happen, not just one. Um, there is on the one hand, um, there's just the, the historical baggage associated with electronic music. Um, Particularly, it's it's uh, legacy in disco uh, and everything that came afterwards. Um, you know, there was disco at the time, especially when it really exploded in the late seventies, uh, came to be associated with um, uh, a certain kind of consumerism and commercialism. Especially because there, by the late seventies, the the major music labels had sort of jumped on the bandwagon and had really thoroughly um, sort of exploited the, the the disco format and the disco style. 
um, to the point of saturating the market. Um, so that had really uh, generated a lot of resistance and, and uh, resentment uh, among the sort of more established rock, uh, rock-oriented rock uh, community, both journalistically as well as fans and performers too. Um, so there was a real marked backlash, uh, especially in North America, um, but also elsewhere. There was a real marked backlash by the end of the 70s, early 80s, that uh, to this day really informs certain antagonisms between dance-oriented, sample-based electronic music and rock. Um, and or just the establishment of sort of popular music studies. Um, but then on top of that, you know, um, uh, for example, hip hop with time came to be much more respected within uh, popular music studies circles, um, even though it was based on samples and, you know, uh, sort of strategic borrowing of musical materials and proposed a lot of the challenges to authorship uh, and authenticity that dance music also did at the time. Um, it fared much better over time because it had um, a much greater focus on lyrics and lyricism, um, you know, because of its, its uh, uh, you know, because of the rap element, um, which provided, I think, uh, a, a set of materials to work with for, you know, for a, a scholar to work with that um, were easier to relate back to the, uh, the, the kind of classic popular music um, aesthetic concerns and political concerns. So in other words, you know, the historically, um, some of the earliest popular music studies as a discipline was very politically oriented. They were really interested in studying popular music as an expression of youth culture, and they were understanding youth uh, subculture specifically as being pol- uh, politically oppositional to authority. You know, they were really looking for what they called resistance through rituals. They were really looking for these examples of youth culture resisting, you know, the man or power or you know parental oppression or what have you. Um, and that was easy to spot in kind of uh, in rock, especially the sort of late 60s cultural revolution, or not cultural revolution, countercultural, um, and and uh, sort of hippie uh, uh, rock moments. And then similarly, that could be found quite quickly within uh, hip hop, especially the more sort of explicitly politically oriented or conscious um, hip hop. You know, so there was this way in which um, the, the clarity that you could get out of now analyzing lyrics was also very helpful for certain genres to be accepted into the canon of of popular music. Um, and that was also a problem for dance music, which was not very lyrics oriented. And when it was, or you know, when you do have lyrics involved, it's often very short loops or hooks that, um, you know, that are hard to read as very clearly political, you know, and so you have to look for the sort of political aspects elsewhere mm-hmm. in the tracks. And uh, that's hard to do. I think that's very interesting. Uh, it sounds like your field and my field, which is the rather uh, unacademic form of music criticism, sort of suffers mm-hmm. the same fate. I mean, um, you guys have a, or maybe traditionally, uh, academics have had a hard time with this music because there isn't any lyrical content to grab onto. There is sometimes only very little musical content to grab onto. Um, people level the same criticism at us. You know, how can you talk about this music? What's there? Right. Yeah. And that's definitely um, a criticism that, or, or a, a challenge, let's say, that gets lobbed uh, uh, repeatedly and, and for which electronic music studies has developed more and more or better and better responses to it. I mean, it's, it, it's not like that's constantly a deal breaker. That's constantly, you know, it's not like we're always stumped when this is posed to us. We, we develop ways of responding to that challenge. Um, but certainly that has been often a, a question that's raised, um, both with 
lyrics and lack thereof, more generally just a lack of explicit politics, which is something that I, I always sort of myself challenge in the, you know, the sense that um, I think that you can definitely find a lot of politics in uh, dance music. And certainly I've done my best to sort of make that uh, clear. Uh, and, you know, my piece for RA last year, for example, had a lot of political uh, um, uh, angles to it, or for that matter, the the piece on, on Gima the two years before um, has its own political angle. So I think there's a lot of politics to be found in dance music, especially as a music that was historically associated with um, marginalized queer and, uh, you know, and racial uh, groups. Um, but the fact that it's not mirrored explicitly in uh, or expressed explicitly through lyrics um, is something that poses a challenge for uh, a tradition uh, of, of studying popular music that really relied on that, that really relied on lyrical analysis to find meaning uh, in pieces. Um, and then more generally, I think there's also the challenge that um, a lot of the music that's produced under the moniker of, of electronic music um, is not very melodic, um, or if it does have melodic elements, they are fragmentary and they're, they're sort of applied in this, in this kind of coloristic way, you know, much like elements of, of, you know, like samples, so to speak, you get these little bits and fragments of melodic elements, um, which can still be integral to a particular track, but they are often of equal importance as the drum programming and as uh, timbre, as color, you know, the, the sort of the the sonic shape and texture and grain um, of the of the, the samples being used, and it is really difficult to develop a um, a precise vocabulary and a, an analytic vocabulary for that. Um, you know, we already have at least within music studies, like the sort of musicological studies, we already have several hundred years worth of extremely precise language and analytic methods for uh, for analyzing melody and harmony. We can talk a great deal about harmonic progressions, and uh, you know, and we can also apply all sorts of more uh, modern twentieth-century models of analysis to you know voice leading, to the way that melodies work, and to the way that uh, you know pitch relationships, um, particularly simultaneous pitch relationships, are expressed in in something. Um, but we have a much more rudimentary language for rhythm and meter, um, and that's you know so central to dance music in general, um, and. We have, uh, you know, again, a great deal of language for um, for formal aspects of music. So the form of the music, it's sort of overarching structures, but those are based on very linear forms, you know, sonata form, concerto form, these sorts of things, um, or even strophic form, verse and chorus forms, um, all of which also don't really work for dance music, which is groove oriented and loop oriented and has a more sort of accumulative structure where layers are built and then pulled away and, you know, certain elements are, are brought in and brought out and so on. And that's just not well described or analyzed using these, these sort of um, more linear forms. So there are all these really, um, uh, there are all these aspects of electronic, uh, dance music that is, uh, you know, very central to that genre and we can't really ignore it, but which at the same time are really difficult to analyze, or we just don't have the vocabulary yet to analyze them, you know? Yeah. It almost sounds like that could make studying electronic music uh, as a musicologist in a way quite exciting. I mean, it almost puts mm -hmm. you on the on the vanguard of the field. There isn't such a language for it. Do you as a scholar kind of get to create that language? Yeah, to a certain extent, or that's at least part of the interest and the excitement for me is trying to find ways to talk about these aspects of the music um, in ways that are concrete, but also, you know, relatable that people can can understand uh, and, and find it, you know, helpful. Uh, and I think 
you know, on the one hand, we, th we thankfully don't have to invent everything from scratch. There has been a lot of interesting um, kind of music theoretical work that's been done on some of these fronts, um, but they just haven't gotten a lot of attention because when they were developing, you know, whenever this particular scholar was developing this particular idea, the the establishment of music uh, or the, the music studies establishment had already been looking in other directions. Um, so one example that I, I bring up a lot because I'm personally really interested in his work is uh, Pierre Schaeffer, uh, you know, one of the, if not the uh, inventor of uh, or the founder of Musique Concrète. Uh, his his work on sound objects and uh, and sonic grain, sonic textures, and so on are really interesting to me and really important for my own work. Uh, and certainly, um, I've I've sort of culled or you know or borrowed uh, or straight up you know yanked several uh, several terms and concepts from him because I found them really useful. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for other theorists and, and other uh, academics who may have been writing about completely different music, but who are often coming up with terms that are actually useful for the analysis of electronic music. So I think part of the work that's out there involves, you know, in getting to know very closely what's already been done and finding ways to reapply it in different ways to to um, elect popular electronic music. Um, but then also, yeah, in, in inventing new concepts and new terms. And, and somebody who I think has done a lot of that work um, and uh, who's also been really uh, you know, helpful and, and influential to my own work uh, is the work of Mark Butler, um, who wrote uh, Unlocking the Groove in 2006. And then he most recently uh, published another book, uh, which focuses more on um, live performance, uh, sort of live sets and, and so on. Uh, called Playing on Something That Runs, I think is the book. Especially in Unlocking the Groove, he did a lot to um, to create new ways of analyzing uh, metric structures, uh, you know, the, the structure of a track and the structure of a whole DJ set, uh, and the way that rhythm works, uh, especially uh, in, in techno. He was specifically focusing on techno. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of those concepts that he's built up there uh, have... You know, remain really useful for anybody who's working on electronic music. You're both an academic and someone who is out in the world seeing a lot of music and is a, a great observer of the scene, I would say. Does, does what you see concern you in any way? I mean, what do you think are sort of areas of concern in kind of the mm -hmm. contemporary dance music scene? Right. Uh, so th this is my opportunity to uh, haul out my cane and, you know, yell at the kids in my yard and tell, <laughs> tell them to get off the grass. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think there's, there are certainly things to be concerned about, um, but also, you know, there were when I was first getting into the rave scene in the 90s as well, you know, so um, anything that I'm going to point to now, I don't necessarily want to claim as being 100% brand new either. Um, when I was getting into raves in 96, 97, there were already very valid concerns about the commercialization of the rave scene then, and, you know, its distance from the sort of uh, historic origins of house music and the way that especially the North American rave scene was getting whiter and whiter and more middle class and more, uh, you know, and more hetero and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of what I'm going to point to now are, are issues that have happened in the past and will probably come back again in the future. They almost um, just seem to be kind of perennial, perennial features issues. of, yeah. yeah. Well, I think in particular, and maybe this is a good way to sort of talk about both the historical concerns and the contemporary concerns is that there's a real ongoing um, question or dilemma um, around, you know, what happens when 
a, a musical scene that was underground in some sense of the word, uh, you know, and I'm going to put big air quotes around the word underground, but, you know, a scene that started off in a marginal space associated with, uh, you know, underprivileged people, um, you know, who to some extent developed this scene as a strategy of survival, you know, in a, in a context that was really difficult and messed up. What happens when that becomes big, when that becomes popular, when everybody else in, wants in on it? What do you do um, as a producer of that music or as a promoter or as somebody just involved in the scene? You know, how do you stay authentic to those historical origins? How do you respect those, uh, those origins? Um, and how do, you, how do you preserve something essential about that while at the same time making it available to a wider audience? Because I think there is, you know, I, I don't think the, the answer to these sort of questions is just to exclude everybody else from it and insist that only a very a small set of people can can participate in these sorts of th- scenes, you know, and I think there is even politically some some satisfaction to be had from having a music that was associated with a stigmatized, marginalized group suddenly become, or over time, become uh, widely appreciated and desirable and highly valued and so on. Um, but nonetheless, I think there are some real concerns to, to, to be had around how that process works. Um, on the one hand, you can have very sort of symbolic concerns about how, how um, these marginal uh, lives are represented or not. Uh, you know, so in other words, how representations of uh, um, blackness or Latinoness or um, uh, queerness, femininity, etc., maybe disappear as as the genre develops more towards a mainstream. Um, but you can also have really concrete economic concerns in the sense of who's making the money and where does that money go, and <clears throat> and in particular. Um, what's happened to the to those the founders? You know the people who were sort of the creative um, engines for a lot of these scenes. You know where are they and how have they fared? Um, and I think if you there's there's a lot of uh, kind of history behind this to show that some of those folks who uh, those DJs and those producers who were um, there at the beginning are really shaping the sound. A lot of them did not do particularly well financially. A lot of them, you know, ended their lives, uh, you know, in in uh, states that were not much better than when they, you know, than when they started their music careers. And you know, and that's really unfortunate. Uh, and then at the same time, when you look at who's really doing well economically, you know, that's it, it's also uh, overrepresented. Let's say by um, you know, by straight men, by, uh, you know, white, white folks, um, by uh, primarily sort of Euro- American and European folks. You know, it doesn't really reflect the, the global uh, audience uh, for electronic music either. Um, so there's lots of ways in which the, the, the success, the real success stories of, of electronic music careers, you know, which is a really small fraction of, of all the people who are, the, you know, the, all the hopefuls out there. Um, you know, doesn't um, does doesn't represent the whole landscape, right? It, it it focuses, or you know, certain groups tend to, to fare better, you know, uh, and that's not for lack of trying or whatever. It's not to say that the people who do well don't deserve it in that sense, but rather that there's a real disproportionate um, uh, distribution of success and of wealth and of exposure and of you know media attention and so on. Um, and that's also a really tough nut to crack. It's really hard to figure out, you know, how do you identify that in a way that doesn't just alienate everybody, you know, and get everybody on the defensive? Um, but then how do you correct for that? I mean, you know, these are these are structural problems as well as cultural ones. These are ones that, 
you know, um, have as much to do with the way the system is set up as with the way our sort of subcultural values um, sort of point us in one direction and not the other, or, you know, encourage us to favor one artist over another and so on. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so much of the conversation, at least as it's being had uh, in the United States, is about dance music as this this kind of this bubble, this this or this economic mm-hmm. success story. It's sort of about how much did Skrillex make last year? Right. Uh, what is the latest uh, company <clears throat> that SFX has acquired? Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, uh, how is Electric Daisy Carnival doing? Uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to how uh, successful certain aspects of this are, um, but not a lot of attention being paid to um, this kind of other side of the story, which is that there are people who have completely lost out on this success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, if there's one way that um, the sort of post 2010, um, you know, moment where the U.S. sort of rediscovered electronic music, um, mostly in the form of first dubstep and then various other bass-oriented genres, um, you know, which they then developed and sort of indigenized in a way into a very American sound that actually was quite different from from the U.K. roots. You know, if there's one difference between that post-2010 moment and some of the other cycles of commercial mainstream success that I've seen earlier in electronic music. And here I'm thinking of the late nineties and that bubble, which was also a kind of a bubble that also crashed, um, or popped. Um, the difference there is that in, in the nineties, um, from my perspective, I saw the major music industry, the major record labels sort of take a passing notice or kind of a glance at the success of the rave moment. And they made some sort of small attempts to cash in on it and none of it really paid off all that well they seem to at a certain point sort of give up on it and let it die on its own uh and then at the same time the rave scene itself due to a whole cluster of factors um really really shrunk if not crashed um you know some of those having to do with law enforcement some of them having to do with economic contractions and so on um but the the major music labels sort of dipped their toe in didn't get the return they wanted and i think maybe they were still historically scared from the big burn they took at the late 70s with disco and the disco crash, I don't know. Um, but in contrast to that, th- this moment post-2010, really, you really see the uh, major music labels or subsidiaries of them, because the major music labels are now smart enough not to you know, uh, insert themselves into subcultural scenes with their own names, so to speak, but lots of subsidiaries of them have been getting involved uh, in a, you know, in a, in a really sort of enthusiastic way, I really sort of noticed the, the, the major music industry, the sort of above ground, highly organized, highly professionalized, um, and at times very ruthless, uh, music industry getting completely immersed in this scene and really sort of endorsing it in one way, um, you know, inventing their own, uh, sort of marketing terms and branding strategies and so on. Um, and with that comes all of this discourse or all of this this discussion really focused on the finances and on the you know what profit is to be made because that is you know um for a large music uh corporation to survive they do have to look at the bottom line in a way that small indie uh organizations don't or do differently i would say you know the the sort of the the cost of financial failure is really different and the the attitudes towards financial success or failure is really different between indie scale things and major label scale things and so i think the fact that the major labels are so involved now at least in the north american dance music scene and i, I would say now more and more in the global 
uh, electronic music scene um, has really uh, influenced the way that these discussions, um, you know, what, or what the what the main topics of discussion are, you know, at uh, industry events and you know conferences and so on. Um, but you know, along with all of these other things, have come really interesting sort of side effects or you know, sort of knock-on effects, you know, like, for example, the fact that I have said the acronym EDM once, I believe, so far, uh, and I've been, you know, making a really conscious effort to sort of vary or rotate between electronic music, dance music, occasionally electronic dance music, you know, and the irony is that about 10 years ago, um, EDM as an acronym already existed, but it didn't exist at all in the commercial sort of um, music industry, but it existed as an academic term that, uh, you know, lots of academic researchers, including myself, had developed uh, as um, a sort of an umbrella term for everything that comes out of this post-disco, um, you know, sample-based, electronic produ electronically produced dance music, um, precisely because from the 90s onwards, you couldn't really name any particular stylistic characteristic as universal to all of these. You, know, you couldn't say that they were all, you know, techno-based or house-based or breakbeat-based or whatever. There was actually too much diversity to have a, a singular um, definition of electronic music. And some of us, I think, inspired by sort of post-structuralist philosophy, I think we're also all, all the more sort of in favor of a non-unitary definition of this. And so electronic dance music became this nice umbrella term that was deliberately vague in order to sort of respect the fact that there was real diversity on the ground stylistically um, and, and, you know, sort of genealogically as well in these scenes. Uh, and so it just became this, this very convenient um, kind of purely descriptive term that had, at the time, we thought it was conveniently free of historical baggage. You know, it wasn't connected to any particular scene. You know, the way that, like, the word techno, for example, gets used uh, in Germany and also in a lot of other European uh, countries as a, a generic term for all electronic music as well as a specific term for the Detroit, Berlin genealogy of, of sort of hard four to the floor um, uh, electronic music. And so EDM was sort of free from that kind of confusion at the time um, because we, we had, you know, we had all kind of come up with this as a term that just described, you know, music that you dance to, which is produced electronically. And it, so then it gets turned into this, uh, or, or, and then we have this moment where it sort of gets... Um, reflected back to us through uh, through um, the music industry, and uh, you know, and starts the the term starts circulating sort of beyond our control in this really interesting and funny way, uh, and now that's made for all sorts of interesting headaches for academics who've published articles on EDM using the acronym EDM, you know, maybe ten years ago, and are now. Uh, they at least have to face the possibility that people are going to read those articles and understand the modern meaning of the term EDM, the more recent um, kind of highly commercialized and very specific term of uh, meaning of EDM as having to do with a, a, a particular set of genres that have developed in the last few years that are mostly associated with the American music festival circuit scene. Uh, and that's caused a lot of confusion. And as a result, you know, me and, uh, you know, I and several other uh, academics have been improvising all sorts of new strategies to to still use a generic term for, you know, electronic dance music that isn't EDM. Yeah, and I think we in music journalism are kind of doing the same thing. I, I think this is an incredibly interesting point about what term to use. In, in my own practice, I sort of say dance music when I'm talking about house or techno or, you know, music that's going to be played in clubs and people are going to dance to. 
uh, electronic music is like a slightly broader term that would maybe also bring in ambient stuff, what you might see at like CTM festival, for example. Um, but at the same time, neither of these terms is perfect. I mean, dance music is probably too broad and could also, you know, waltz is dance yep. music. Yeah, and samba um, and tango and yeah. so on. Uh, on, a, on a very basic level, I mean, where are you guys as academics at with that? Is there some better term I could be using <laughs> when I'm writing a record review now? Lord, I wish. No, there is. We have, we have not found uh, a good replacement yet, I don't think. Uh, and the strategies that I've been seeing mostly have been either to um, actually just to just avoid the acronym EDM and just still use electronic dance music spelled out completely, which interestingly enough, um, doesn't inspire the same negative reactions, um, as, as just the acronym. Like I, I found that interesting that it's, it's still the same term, but if you spell it out, sometimes that already, um, you know, fails to ring <laughs> the bell or, you know, send up the red flag or whatever that, that causes folks to kind of freak out when they hear it. Um, but other than that, there's been, I've just been seeing a lot more alternation between, yeah, electronic music, dance music, club music sometimes. Um, and also I think there's been more of a term, a turn towards being much more specific about genres. Um, so in other words, to avoid altogether talking about electronic music as a whole and to really make your claims limited to, you know, techno or to the electronic music scenes of a particular city or, you know, um, yeah, dubstep or what have you. Uh, and that's also kind of a, a sort of a solution is to just avoid talking about it in the universal in general and actually to speak very specifically about particular genres. But there are times when you do want to make a point about broader cultural patterns or like a shared, a shared aesthetic or a shared sort of historical origin or what have you, um, for which you would want a, a more generic term. And, uh, yeah, we, we kind of had it for a while, but then it, it ended up uh, being, you know, uh, you know, to be honest, being sort of, you know, perverted by uh, the, the, the entry, the very rapid and unexpected entry of um, a highly organized capital, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. sort of music industry capital, um, who did a, you know, on, on, to their credit, I guess, did a real good job of, you know, finding this acronym and making very good use out of it. Um, uh, you know, good in the sense of profit, profitable use out of it for the time that they did. But now it's really developed such resistance that, uh, you know, artists and fans who have no idea about the previous life, uh, the previous life of the term EDM um, have really strong opinions about it. I've actually, you know, interestingly enough, um, I've read several uh, articles, like blog pieces um, that present themselves as authoritative um, explaining the origins of the term EDM. I've now come across a few of these um, written in the last year or two by clearly somebody who was not alive when the term EDM was actually first developed in the, in the mid to late 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, and their origin story is that it essentially emerged sort of fully formed uh, sometime around 2010 when, uh, you know, dance music blew up in, in, in North America. And that sort of inspired me, you know, one of my kind of, I don't know if it's a goal, but one of the things I'd like to do sometime soon is actually write a piece um, that's not academic, but is actually sort of more public for public reading or more general reading about the actual history of the term EDM, because it's a much longer story than than just the last few years. As I mentioned before, I mean, you're both an academic and uh, a big fan of the music and obviously have a lot of passion for electronic music. I know when I've seen you out and about mm -hmm. in Berlin, I, I sense that. Is it ever hard to kind of make a distinction between what you do as an academic and what you do as someone who goes out, someone who likes to rave? 
Sure, of course, of course there is. Um, I think there are a lot of challenges, and I think those are made all the more complicated by the fact that I do um, ethnographic work. You know that some of that my my research methodology is really focused on, um, you know, being part of the scene that I study. Um, you know, participant observation, as they call it. You know, making yourself part of a particular social situation, and then. Um, using that perspective to to really gain some insight into the scene that you wouldn't if you just sort of like helicoptered in and interviewed three people and left. Like so, there's that. There's a certain there's a certain sort of embeddedness that's uh, I think really really important to how I work methodologically, which by by its nature will blur the boundaries between work and play, so to speak, um, or between uh, you know personal interests and professional interests. Um, I think. There are, well, in my experience, there are both benefits and, and costs to that. Um, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> the amount of time that I've spent, um, you know, embedding myself into these scenes and making connections and, you know, making lots of very social sort of connections to these scenes and, and, and so on have um, really allowed me to have access to, to, the, to these sort of communities in ways that I think are sort of a... a or a classic outsider, so to speak, would not. Um, and the fact that I am also very passionate about the music, the fact that I am, you know, make no attempt to cover over the fact that I'm also really interested in this music also helps with getting access in the sense that there are a lot of people who probably would not want to talk to me or give me the, you know, the time of day if I were just some random academic who didn't give two shits about, uh, you know, electronic music. I think it's, again, also important um, to establish myself as having certain sort of bona fides or certain, you know, um, a certain degree of authenticity, I guess, in quotation marks, uh, in relation to the scene. Uh, and I've spoken to other people who do this sort of research, who work more generally in nightlife scenes, not just dance music, but also um, I have some colleagues who work in drag performance scenes uh, and, and so on, who have said that it's been really important for them to present themselves first as fans and, you know, first as love you know music lovers listeners dancers participants whatever and then as researchers that you know that's how they sort of present themselves to the people they work with because if they do it in the other order so to speak they often will just get shut out right away so um i think that has been both an advantage and a cost um you know and then otherwise it's uh you know it is difficult to to set boundaries between uh work and play in the sense of what are you actually up to when you're when you go out right you know, if I go out, you know, like I did last weekend or like I might do next weekend or whatever, am I at work or am I at play? You know, when I first started doing this research, especially as a PhD student, I um, used to draw bright red lines between those. And I really used to make very explicit decisions about, you know, is this a, you know, am I on the clock this night or not? You know, and if so, the way I behave that night really differs and what I permit myself to do and not, and what I force myself to do as well, as far as very structured observations and so on can differ quite a lot. Um, and then as I've sort of gotten older and had more experience doing this, um, you know, and as the research phase of, of my work sometimes overlaps with phases where I'm not actively collecting data, but I'm actually just processing the data I've already collected. You know, as all of this has gone on, I've found that um, I don't make that line quite as cleanly anymore, or rather I'm, I've gotten better at switching between the two modes. So there will be times where I won't expect to, to be on the clock and then I will see something really interesting or I will have a really interesting interaction with somebody or a really uh, useful conversation or something and I can switch into work mode and, you know, uh, you know have those certain 
forms of attention that are necessary to really sort of mentally record everything that's going on. Um, you know, notably, and I should mention this because uh, it's not an obvious point, but um, for me, when I do research, I don't take notes in that in the classic sense um, because it's socially really inappropriate to haul out a notepad in the middle of a nightclub. So instead, I do yeah, a lot every, of... Everybody, you know, yeah. everybody hates that guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's one at every party. Um, but yeah, no, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be dealing with somebody who has a notepad out, um, you know, especially in nightlife scenes where part of the fun and part of the, not just the fun, but the fulfillment of it for many people is, you know, doing things that wouldn't necessarily be possible for you in a daytime setting, um, you know, doing things that won't follow you home, so to speak, or experimenting with ways of being that are different from what you do in your everyday life and so on and so forth. You know, um, the suspension of consequences to a certain degree is really important for, for, for nightlife scenes. And so if you're showing up and taking detailed you know, photographs or notes or recording people's voices or whatever, obviously that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. And it's just going to be socially super inappropriate. You know, you know, even if it's, even if you manage to get on the right side of the law around some of that, you know, it, you still will be violating all sorts of um, un, unspoken codes or sometimes explicitly spoken codes along with photography. Um, you know, and so when I, when I do do research, um, or when I do research that's on site, that sort of thing, then I really am, um, using memory quite a lot. Um, and it's a skill that I've developed over time where I can actually recall large chunks of conversations verbatim, you know, where I can recount, re recount a narrative, um, encounter in quite a, quite a lot of detail. Um, you know, and in those cases I'll be taking notes as I get home. So I'll, I'll, you know, sort of be present to the moment when I'm there. And then as soon as I get home, I'll take very detailed notes of something that's happened. And then I anonymize the sources and do all those other things to make sure that I protect the people that I've, that I've been uh, interacting with. Uh, and then that sort of sits separately from more formalized interviews that I will do offsite when everybody is, uh, you know, sober and at their own place and so on, which is a whole other form of data collection, which is very different. Mm -hmm.